Hello, folks. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Stefan Angelini. Um, we're here on the ASX Stock Tips Live Group, um, but also we're going live to the Investor Types podcast, which I'm the host of. Um, you might not know me. I'm a, I run Angel Advisory, a financial advisory practice, and we're here talking today and giving you all some education around ASX Stock Tips, but more importantly, long short funds. So if you don't want know what longing a stock is, so longing a stock is essentially betting that it will go up over time. Shorting a stock is betting that it will go, that it will go down and you, can, and you can actually make money out of those sorts of trades. Um, mostly it's to do with volatility. It's long short funds are designed, the old school hedge fund mentality of let's make sure we've got stable, consistent returns over time, even during periods of volatility like we're seeing today. So if you don't know what we're talking about today and who we're talking to, we're talking to Mark Burgess from Cadinia Capital. All right, welcome back. Uh, Mark Burgess, Daniel McDonald, thanks for joining me. Great to have you on the line here today. Daniel, great to see you here again. Um, for those of you who don't know, Daniel started the ASX Stock Tips group and runs McDonald Legal, the law firm based out of Melbourne. Um, but luckily enough, we're here joined by Mark Burgess, um, an expert in volatile markets. Um, what we're talking about, long short funds, uh, creating consistent, steady returns over time, which is what these funds are designed to do. You might have heard of hedge funds back in the day, um, but basically long short is designed for lower volatility or risk. Now, Mark has been around for a long time, uh, did 15 years as, as a stockbroker throughout New York and London, came back to Australia in 2004, uh, started up Cadinia Capital in 2006. Now, Cadinia Capital has seen a few things um, through the GFCs, um, bear markets, bull markets, and now even managing money through today, um, which is what we're going to focus on really. Uh, I'm going to get a bit of education on what a short fund is. Um, what we're going to talk about in terms of stocks today is we're going to have a focus on uh, PointsBet, Qantas, Aussie Broadband. So if there are a few things, if you've got any questions on either, any of those specific funds, Mark's going to take a bit of a focus on them. Um, introducing Daniel McDonald. So Daniel, um, I know we had a bit of a chat to Mark Burgess before this call. Have you got any questions for Mark before we launch into his presentation? Thanks, Evan. Mark, welcome to our education series and thanks for joining us here. Um, so Cardinia started the fund in 2006, a couple of years into it, boom, GFC hit. It's no wonder why you guys are experts in volatile markets. Obviously, uh, some similarities in terms of uh, wild rides on the market for uh, 2020 is the introduction of COVID. Um, tell me, how is, uh, how is trading in 2020 different than it was in 20, uh, 2008? Well, the major difference is just the the speed and severity of the uh, the collapse in markets this year, and it was you know pretty much an external event, a bit of a black swan type event, if you like. Uh, whereas go back to the GFC through two thousand and eight and well into two thousand and nine, um, you know it, it it was a a series of events, um, largely economic events, and. Um, a, a gradual grind lower in markets. So in some ways it was easier to manage a portfolio in, uh, in 2008 because it happened more slowly and gradually. So we could set the portfolio up for a declining market and, um, and, and profit from the, the market declining. This year um, it, it happened so quickly. So the, fortunately, with our type of strategy um, it, it, and our fund, it's, it is um, very flexible. So we're able to respond very quickly to the worsening virus situation and position the portfolio accordingly so that we could protect the capital. And that's 
Ultimately, what it's all about for our fund is protecting capital when markets are exceptionally weak. And then when markets are strong, trying to participate um, as much as we can on the upside. Yeah, obviously, uh, probably a much faster recovery um, with 2020 than, uh, than 2008. An incredibly fast recovery, yeah. It, I think it surprised everyone with the speed and magnitude of, uh, of the recovery. Yeah, just on the back of the announcement the other week. And another one overnight, yeah, as well. That's right. Um, we've now got two vaccines that happily look like they're going to work, and that's fantastic news for everyone. That's Absolutely. it. Things, things, things are certainly moving fast. Uh, Mark, we're here to talk about uh, longs and shorts, um, and in particular what you do in your fund to give everyone some education. Before we do launch into it, I just want to remind everyone that Everything contained in this presentation is just general information only. Please don't consider it as any personal advice. If you think about taking any trades or, or doing any sort of investing yourself, um, please go and seek the license of a financial professional. Um, and if you are going to trade, please do your own research and don't take this as any sort of financial advice. Now, um, before we get into it, Mark, um, we, are, we are joined by, obviously, Daniel McDonald, who runs McDonald Legal. They help with a lot of SMSF setups. So people who are looking to get self-managed super fund setups themselves, um, reach out to McDonald Legal. And as Angel Advisory, I mean, we love long short funds because a lot of our clients who take who like minimal risk in their investment portfolios um, or who are setting up portfolios for retirement love to utilise things like long short funds for that capital stability. Um, so while, while, while in saying that, Mark, I'd love to hand the reins over to you. For everyone who's listening out there or watching out there, um, if you are listening on a podcast, we will have this on a YouTube clip so you'll be able to come back and see the presentation. So, Mark, um, I want to hand the reins over to you and pull up your presentation. And what I'll do is I'll hand the floor to you to go through your presentation. If you are um, on Facebook or LinkedIn and you would want to ask some questions, um, we do have the chat box open for you. And otherwise, um, please feel free to leave a comment somewhere and we'll make sure we'll get back to you. So, Mark, I'm going to hand the floor to you and we'll pop up for some questions every now and then. Great. Thanks very much, Stefan. Sorry, we're just uh, <laughs> trying to get to the first slide. Here we go. All right. So um, the, the fund, as, as mentioned earlier, um, launched in May of 2006. So it's been running for around 15 years now, which certainly makes it one of the, um, the oldest uh, absolute return funds in the Australian market. Um, an important event for, for us was partnering with Benelong Funds Management in August of 2011. Um, prior to that, the fund had just been a quite a small wholesale fund and by partnering Benelong, you know, we were able to open the fund up and, and access uh, for retail investors. So the strategy is um, what's known as a variable long short fund. And I will spend a bit of time um, in a few minutes just highlighting the different types of long short strategies. But the Benelong Canadian Fund is a variable long short fund or also known as a variable beta fund. And what that means is that we are able to adjust our exposure to the equity market over time. And, and consequently, through periods like the GFC and earlier on this year, we're able to lower our exposure to the equity market and, um, and protect the capital somewhat. So it's a pretty flexible investment mandate from that uh, perspective. And a very important part of running a fund like this is having um, some really robust and active risk management frameworks in place. So we have a lot of rules in terms, in terms of how we manage the risk from um, exposure limits 
at a fund level to um, maximum uh, holding sizes. And then we also use what are known as stop losses to, um, to, to minimise the losses in individual positions. So we have what's called a, a soft stop at 10%. If a stock falls and goes against us by 10%, we'll reassess that position and usually start to reduce the position size. And at 15%, that's a hard stop loss for us. We, we must close out the position. So it's a good discipline to have. We are pretty much um, you know, standard fundamental stock pickers and, and take a long-term view on stocks, but it's a fairly high conviction and concentrated portfolio. We try to, um, to hold to a maximum of 50 stocks in the portfolio. Normally, uh, we'll have five to 10 short positions as part of that portfolio. There is a very strong alignment of interests between um, the, the, the team of three that are managing the fund, Christiane Rader, Stuart Lark, and myself, and the investors, because the three of us as uh, the portfolio managers have a significant amount of our own personal wealth um, invested alongside uh, everyone else in the fund. The other strong alignment of interest is that um, the, the investment team are major shareholders in the business. So between the three of us, we own 65% of the business. So that ensures, um, you know, we're, we're very, very committed to the business and, and it's not likely that uh, you're going to see any turnover. So, you know, very stable investment team over time. And it's a, it's a very much um, a boutique investment model whereby partnering with Benelong, we're able as, as the, a very small investment team to just focus on managing the fund and we, we really rely on Benelong um, to provide us with back office support, um, marketing and distribution, even providing uh, you know, the office um, from which we used to work, um, but presently obviously uh, working remotely. And you'll see down the bottom of the slide there, um, we're approved by Zenith and Investment Grade with Lonsec, the two big um, ratings agencies. Now, the investment objective for us, it's, it's kind of twofold. So it is to achieve consistent positive returns through an investment cycle, but with an overarching philosophy of capital protection. So the, the two parts to that, the consistent positive returns, um, you know, it is an absolute return fund, not a relative return fund. Most of the Australian equity funds are relative return funds where they're managed and, and measured against, say, the ASX 300. Um, and the manager will do a good job if they've outperformed the index and a poor job if they've underperformed the index. For us as an absolute return fund, we want to try and make money in any market conditions, um, which you know, might sound easy, it's, it's, it's not easy, but um, you know, that, that because of the flexibility of our mandate and the ability to potentially profit from falling share prices, we do have the tools in our armory to, um, to be able to make money in, um, in falling markets. And then the second part of that overarching philosophy of capital protection, now that's really important. Um, in terms of long-term wealth generation, the key thing is actually not losing money. So if you can avoid the losses through periods like the GFC, through periods like the first quarter of 2020, 
you're um, a long way there in terms of making um, long-term positive returns for your investors. Now, uh, this chart just shows the performance of the fund over almost 15 years relative to the ASX 300 accumulation index. So the, the top line is the, the fund's return. The uh, lower, lighter blue line is the ASX 300 accumulation index. And then we've got the RBA cash rate just running along uh, a dotted line there. And what you can see is through the GFC, when markets fell quite dramatically and in, in excess of 40%, uh, we were able to go into that pre capital preservation mode and the fund was able to not lose any money and, in fact, um, recorded a very small positive return in the 2008 calendar year. And then, obviously, more recently, um, to the far right-hand side, we see that very dramatic fall, uh, which occurred largely through... Um, February and March this year, um, where markets fell around 30%. And again, um, our fund was able to, um, by lowering our exposure to the equity market and holding more cash and selling things like share price index futures contracts to again protect the capital. So if you can avoid those massive losses or drawdowns in the long term, you're going to end up being um, well ahead of the game. Just looking at the, the performance of the fund, just a couple of charts here that try and um, illustrate that consistency. The top one is just showing you um, the monthly returns. And as you can see, uh, there's a line there, which is the zero line. And the fund has had um, far more positive months than negative months. So there's quite a, a positive view to that sine curve, if you like. And the bottom chart just shows the monthly returns over almost that 15-year period of the fund and the market itself. And what that shows is that the fund has consistently been able to make money uh, pretty much every month, uh, June, um, slightly negative number um, on average. But, you know, relative to the market, you can see through, you know, January's the fund's consistently averaged positive returns um, whereas the market's done negative the same in May to a lesser extent in June and, and again in November. So it's about consistently producing um, small positive numbers and they compound um, over time and, and that's uh, that's way to generate some good longer-term numbers. So over the, the life of the fund, um, an annualised return of 8.3%. The market has uh, done a little over 5% in that time. Annualised standard deviation is really important when you're considering um, returns and, and funds to invest in. Standard deviation is a measure of volatility um, or, or risk, and the standard deviation of the fund's returns at around 7.5% is about half of the volatility of the Australian equity market over that period. So we've been able to generate... Um, better returns in the equity market, but with half the volatility, which is um, certainly a, a, a sleep well at night factor for a, a lot of our investors. Now, the other interesting number to look at is a, a correlation coefficient. So how correlated are the returns of the investment fund relative to the market? Obviously, if the funds, are, the returns are pretty much the same as the market, you're going to have a correlation coefficient of, of close to 100%. Um, our fund has only been 64%. So 
uh, we provide some diversification there um, relative to other funds which are, say long only funds that are 100 percent invested they're going to be very very highly correlated to the market um, one other stat that i draw attention to the maximum drawdown is another one that um, we tend to look at in in our industry it's how far the the unit price falls um, before it recovers and makes a new high so the maximum drawdown for our fund um, is 11.7 percent um, obviously we've managed through the gfc when the market drew down over 40 percent and then through february and march this year the market drew down um, around 30 percent so that fund correlation this is another way of looking at it and, and what you tend to expect with a fund like ours. The top chart shows the 10 best months for the market over the last 15 years. The light blue is the, uh, the, the ASX 300 accumulation. The dark blue is, is, is our fund. And as you can see, when markets are really, really strong, um, we do not keep up with those markets. Um, you can see that we're, we've always been positive in those really strong months, but a lot of these months are, are turning point months. So the far right-hand one is, in fact, uh, April of this year, when after that massive 30% drawdown through February and March, the market bounced around 9%. And what we tend to find is that we're in capital preservation mode in, in periods like that and have a very low exposure to the market. So we don't participate so much in, in that initial bounce, and then we need to obviously respond to that. The, the second one from the right there is, is March of 2009, uh, which again was the, 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 the bottom and the, the first positive month post GFC. The more important one probably for our investors though is the, the bottom chart, which shows um, in the light blue lines, the, the 300 accumulation index again, and then in the dark blue uh, bars, the, the Cardinia performance. And the one on the far left there uh, is a very recent data point. Uh, that is a that is March of this year when the market fell around 21%. And as you can see, um, our fund was able to avoid a lot of the carnage through that period. And finally, just a, a, a fund exposure chart. This one just uh, shows you the way that we do move our portfolio around over time. The, the blue bars above the line are all of the equity long positions. The red bars below the line are the, the short positions, and that includes share price index futures contracts as well as being short individual stocks. And the dark black line here is, is what's known as the net exposure of the fund, which is taking the longs, the blue bars, and then subtracting the reds, the shorts, gives us an overall net exposure. And as you can see, we, we do move our net exposure around quite significantly over time. And even you know, this year, we've been um, below zero and slightly net short for the entire fund. And we've also been right up at our kind of maximum net long exposure that we're comfortable with of about 75%. Um, if, you, if you look to the left, around that 40% line, if you run your eye along that line, that's about an average of what our net exposure has been 
over nearly 15 years. So we're never fully exposed to the market. We've always got some hedging, some protection in place because you just never know when that next left field event is going to come along. And we obviously saw that uh, in February and March of this year with the virus. So now I'm just going to go into a bit more detail on long short strategies. Um, you know, Stefan briefly mentioned uh, we're, we're all very um, familiar with the concept of going long a stock, um, you know, buying something on the expectation that it's going to rise in price and then selling at a later time, hopefully, at, at a profit. Short selling is just the, um, the mirror image of that. It's taking a view that um, a stock price is going to fall. So you start by selling it and then you look to buy it back at a later date at a lower price and lock in a profit. Um, so it, it, in some ways, you know, it's quite simple. What are the advantages of a long short strategy? Firstly, um, and something that we love as portfolio managers, it doubles our investment opportunities and the way that we can make money. So for a long only manager, they can only make money from a stock price going up. If they hate a stock, uh, they're clearly not going to buy it, but they can't short sell it and make money out of it. They're just not going to own it. But for us, we can make money from um, you know, a stock price falling and, and from investing, therefore, in a, uh, you know, a poorly run company. Um, now, yeah. Mark, um, you, you got about 10 to 20% of your fund at any point in time in, short, in these short strategies. Do you find that you've got that you increase your exposure to short strategies in periods of volatility like we're currently seeing or where you see there's less of a bull market? Yeah, we tend to. Um, I mean, sometimes it's, it's a valuation thing of the markets looking yeah. very expensive and stock prices overextended and... Consequently, we're finding, you know, we find more and more stocks that we think, well, gee, they're well overvalued. Um, let's short those. Um, so, yeah, and at other times it can be just being more, getting nervous about the market, being cautious and thinking, gee, if we have a correction here, these are the type of companies that could, um, you know, really fall dramatically. So let's short those. But we can also use a broader derivative like a share price index futures contract and, and that gives us broad coverage over the market. The benefit there is, um, you know, share price index futures in Australia are a deep and liquid market, and we can um, put a, a lot of money to work very closely. So if we want to reduce our exposure to the market from 60% to 30%, we can literally do that in a couple of minutes if we wanted to using share price index futures contracts, whereas, you know, to do that with individual stocks, it's clearly going to take longer. Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah. Being able to short gives you the flexibility to to protect the fund and and to in fact produce positive returns in a falling market. If you do have you know, a lot of shorts in place, you're holding cash and you are selling share price index futures contracts, which you know appreciate in value in a falling market. And the final point there is just um, highlighting that. Uh, long short strategies are still you know, not that prevalent in Australia. They're far more prevalent in the US and Europe. Uh, you look at the uh, US market, around 6% of that market is short sold. Look at the Australian market, it's only 2% of the market is short sold. So that's an indication that short selling is just not as prevalent in the Australian market. Now, there are actually three different 
categories or types of long short funds and strategies. Most people don't realise this. Um, probably the most common in Australia is what's known as um, an active extension fund or a 130-30 fund. There are even 150-50 funds now. What is a 130-30 fund? A 130-30 fund, if I've got a $100 million fund, um, you can borrow some money and you can go along 130% of the value of the fund or $130 million worth of stock. And then you can short sell 30% of the fund or $30 million worth of stocks. So 130 mil less 30 mil brings you back to that 100 mil, which is the size of your fund. Um, but it's allowing you to uh, take a negative view on some stocks and short sell 30% of your portfolio. But overall, you've still got 100% exposure to the market or a beta, if you like, of one or the beta of the market. So those type of funds, they tend to generate returns very similar to the market um, and, and similarly the volatility um, or the standard deviations tend to be pretty similar to the market. The correlation coefficient and the drawdowns all tend to be very similar to um, a, a, a long-only fund, which is just 100% exposed. So from um, an asset allocation perspective, clearly they sit in an Australian equities allocation. A very different strategy is what's known as a market neutral strategy. And to use that $100 million fund as an example, in their case, they'll go long $100 million worth of stock. Then they'll short $100 million of stock against it. So 100 long minus 100 short leaves you with zero market exposure. You've got no directional exposure to the market at all, no beta, and it all comes down to the individual stock picking ability of the managers. And as long as their longs are outperforming their shorts, then they're gonna generate a positive return. And because of that structure, there are a number of market neutral funds that actually can use leverage and they leverage up to say four times. They'll borrow another $300 million to go with that $100 million. And that by leveraging that, um, it magnifies their stock picking ability. So as long as their longs are outperforming their shorts, that works very well. Now, these funds, the correlation of their returns really tends to be close to zero to the market. And it is a true alternative uh, type investment. It, it's not, it doesn't behave like an equity investment. The third category, which is what our fund is, um, and there are a lot, quite a few of them in Australia, um, it's known as a variable long short fund. And you know, we'll, we go back and look at that fund exposure diagram and that's, that really highlights what a variable long short fund is, the ability to adjust the exposure to the market over time. Ours is probably the most dynamic of the variable long short funds in Australia and that we do really actively adjust our exposure. Um, you've got some variable long short funds that tend to run a consistently quite high exposure of close to 100% and some that, that run them um, quite low and consequently have a much lower volatility. So depending on how much exposure that particular variable long short funds has, it, it could sit as an Australian equities exposure or, or it could be more uh, an alternatives sector allocation. Now, when you're looking at these funds, how do you analyse them? Which ones do you pick to invest in? Just a few suggestions. Firstly, 
try and hopefully get um, access to a number of years of data. If a fund's been going for ideally five or 10 years, then you get to see what their track record is across uh, a full equity market cycle. Um, obviously, if you've got a fairly new fund, it's, it's gonna be far more limited. Um, that standard deviation, which I've mentioned, it's a measure of the volatility, a measure of the risk taken. It's really, really important. Um, now there were funds back prior to the GFC that were generating some fantastic numbers of 20, 30% returns. Um, and people were piling into those, but then uh, the GFC hit and those funds actually blew themselves up. If people had looked at well, the standard deviation of the returns of those funds, they would have seen that they were running volatilities of 20, 30, even 40%. So they were taking enormous risk to generate those returns. And the other thing that a number of them were doing, they were using leverage. They were borrowing to um, increase the size of the fund and to magnify um, the return. So it's really important to know what the volatility of the returns is and whether or not a fund's using leverage. You can be comfortable with a good manager of a market neutral fund using leverage because there's no directional exposure to the market, but be wary of it um, in something like a variable long short fund. The maximum drawdown I mentioned earlier is just how far a fund has fallen from its high um, before it recovers to, to, um, to, to reach a new high level. So a very large drawdown is going to indicate a fund that um, doesn't have too much of a focus on capital preservation potentially. A, a, a quick shortcut for looking at that is just to look at the performance of a fund in negative months and see okay, well, gee, that fund falls as far as the market in negative months, or, oh, actually, no, they've, they've done well. They haven't lost money in those negative months. And the correlation of returns, finally, is just um, you know, how correlated those numbers are to the overall market, and that becomes very important in the context of um, constructing a portfolio of different funds. So that's, um, that's an overview of uh, long-short investing and, and the type of, uh, of funds that we have in the Australian market. Yeah, awesome, Mark. Uh, that's some great insights and I, I could imagine a lot of information that a lot of people would not have known um, really around what shorting stocks are and, and how to even pick a good fund. It's just, it's absolutely different language to a lot of people. Uh, let's have a look at market outlook and let's get into some stock talk. Let's, talk, let's look at um, if we could what do you think is happening around the world? What's happening? What's the effects on markets? What are some big things that you're looking at? And then we'll dive into some stock-specific conversations um, and really get into the nitty-gritty. So, Mark, what do you see happening around the world? Look, um, it's it's generally positive. I mean, there's some longer-term uh, consequences of, of what's happening with, I think, particularly with you know, central banks and the, the monetary stimulus, the money printing that's going on, the quant easing that we've seen, um, that is unprecedented in its magnitude. And you know, we've never experienced this before. So you know, we don't know what the end game is here. At some point, um, you know, some of this debt's going to have to get repaid or it's going to have to get written off or um, inflated away. Um, so, yeah, we're kicking the can down the road a little bit, but... In the near term, really, um, I think central banks and governments have almost got the back of, of equity markets. It's, 
it's a really coordinated um, monetary and fiscal stimulus that we're seeing at the moment from central banks and from governments, whether it's you know, the US market uh, where the Fed is really kind of become the backstop for the market and even for, for the government and their spending at the moment um, to the Australian market where, you know, we've, we've got rates now of cash rate of 10 basis points and, and some quantitative easing in terms of bond buying for the first time ever and very, um, you know, clear guidance that they're going to keep rates low for the next two to three years. So that coordinated monetary and fiscal stimulus that we're seeing globally um, is a real you know, positive for markets uh, in the short to medium term. And, and I think that we will see um, further stimulus coming in the US market probably next month and probably around another trillion dollars um, that's going to be finding its way out to uh, mums and dads. And uh, ultimately, you know, they'll save some of it, but they're going to spend most of it. Um, the vaccine is, is uh, a recent very, very positive development. At the moment, there's a bit of, you know, we've got a bit of a trade-off between um, effective vaccines that, that are, are now um, well advanced and um, the current situation in terms of infection around the world, particularly in the US and Europe and you know, the, the lockdowns that are rolling through Europe and through some states of the US. So there's a trade-off there, but the market, I think, is very focused on positive news and, and vaccine news. We saw that last night with Moderna. We saw it a week ago with Pfizer and their vaccine. It's great that there's two and we know that there's a number more in development uh, that hopefully will also be effective. And you know, that's just going to allow economies to reopen and, um, and you know, for economic growth to, to really start to recover. And you know, we're seeing that in Australia at the moment. Um, Clearly, Victoria's been in lockdown for a long time, but just in the couple of weeks since we've started to reopen, uh, the data coming from you know, retailers is very, very positive. Uh, there's a lot of pent-up demand out there. People are sick of being stuck at home and they want to get out and about and spend some money and get back into restaurants and bars. Um, we do anticipate that the US dollar is going to weaken over the next couple of years. Um, the, the, the size of net foreign debt, about 70% of GDP in the US, is uh, you know, quite disturbing. The Fed is determined to, to get inflation up. So um, devaluing the US dollar um, and importing some inflation is the best way for them to achieve that and um, ultimately to, um, to manage the, 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 the amount of debt that they've built up. The other side of that, of course, is real assets like gold, like real estate, um, should strengthen in that environment. So now we're quite positive on the outlook still for gold. Just the amount of money printing that's going on from central banks. Um, you know, gold is a, a store of value in in um, in in that environment and, and in uncertain times. And um, you know, we're seeing the real estate market here in Australia really. Um, stabilize and now look like it's taking off again um, another thing that i think will support equities in the in the near term uh, even into the medium term is um the outlook for bonds and and bonds are just not an attractive 
uh, investment option at the moment with rates so low, um, you know, cash rates effectively zero. Um, and the other thing with bonds is that's interesting is in recent times, they just haven't provided the diversification from a risk perspective for portfolios. So um, they're just not doing the, the job that they did historically for a lot of investors. So I think you're going to continue to see money moving uh, away from bonds and from cash into equities and, and real estate to a lesser extent. Uh, the final thing now, I've mentioned you know, political and geopolitical risks. Um, I do think that they're probably starting to recede um, with um, an adult moving into the White House in a couple of months' time. Um, and also, you know, I think the Biden administration won't change their view towards China. I think that China are going to, um, you know, continue to try and uh, take over the world almost, if you like. So the US and um, and allies in, in the region like Australia are going to continue to push back against that. But I, I think there's some hope for um, you know, less of a tariff war between the US and China. And again, you know, that would be positive for for global growth and for equities generally. So you know, we, whilst recognising that there's a lot of volatility out there, um, overall, um, you know, we've got a reasonably positive outlook for, for equities. Mark, that, that point on that bond for equity switch, I mean, I get so many people come to me with cash or with term deposits who have just been for so long going, I'm sick of it, I'm sick of it, but I'll put up with it, I'm sick of it, but I'll put up with it. And finally, they're saying, they're coming to me and saying, what's my other option besides having cash or besides having term deposits? Because term deposits are now 0.5%. And it is where well, you've got to take a riskier bond, which is not still not returning great. Um, or you have to go, you have to figure out how to use equity um, to achieve your goals. And if your goal is trying to draw, derive an income return, well, you got to, you have to go searching elsewhere. Um, so I am seeing a lot of those bond switches going into equities. Um, when you talk about the US stimulus, um, I guess a lot of people are scared around stimulus and, and what it means for economies, governments, and how long they'll be paying back the debt for. Looking at Australia, for example, there seems to be a lot of economists predicting that there's still legroom for more stimulus to come simply because the cost of paying for the stimulus is so low because interest rates are so low. So while there is a lot of stimulus, a lot of government debt out there, it's still the cost of servicing that debt is quite low. And they're actually saying that, well, the Australian government might go again, might issue more stimulus to the Australian economy. What's your views on whether or not the Australian government will issue more stimulus and the cost of servicing that debt? Yeah, look, we're, we're in a fortunate position to start with relative to, say, the US or a lot of other major economies in that, you know, the Australian country's balance sheet was in pretty good shape. We, you know, we we were looking at running a surplus this year before COVID hit and um, yeah. obviously the iron ore price and to a lesser extent coal prices have, have been um, the major major contributors of that, and, but you know, the look at the iron ore price; it's still holding up well above 120 US dollars a ton, and and showing no signs really of cracking at this stage. So, yeah, well, Australia's in a fortunate position in that we had very low debt levels to start with. Consequently, the government was able to, um, you know, provide really meaningful support and stimulus to businesses and individuals, um, and the banks. I guess, kicked in as well and played their part in terms of deferring um, interest repayments from SMEs and from individuals. 
Um, so, and look, you make a very valid point about interest rates are so low. It's a it's a great time to be borrowing money um, <laughs> because you can borrow a fair bit of money and not have to pay back a lot of interest. We all know at the end of the day, the money needs to get paid back somehow. But yeah, look, I think there's there's certainly more scope for the government to um, to to borrow more and um, you know go further into deficit if necessary. Look, hopefully. Um, it might not be necessary because Australia, again, is in a very fortunate position relative to the rest of the world because we have the virus under control and therefore our economies are kind of starting to, to get back to normal. You know, we saw China recover very, very quickly and their economy is now booming um, and, and, in fact, stronger than it was um, going into uh, the start of the year when the virus first hit there. But clearly, you know, it's not the same story in the US and Europe. Um, but, yeah, Australia, we're in a very fortunate position. Hopefully we can keep this virus under control until, um, you know, vaccines arrive and are, and are widely distributed. Um, and so, yeah, look, I think Australia's in a good position and consequently I think, um, you know, the Australian equity market is also in a, a relatively good position. I think with the reopening you, you're starting to see, um, you know, uh, profitability recover for companies so going into the next reporting season in February, you know, we might start to see some earnings upgrades. And at the end of the day, it's it's earnings that, that drive share prices. So if we're seeing recovering earnings, um, I think we can still see some upside to share prices. CSL just got approval to um, build a new distribution centre at an airport west. Um, so see that pop up. Um, but that, that pent up demand and what might happen to companies and profitabilities. I think Australian savings rates have gone from somewhere around 5 to 7% up to 20 or so percent throughout uh, this whole COVID lockdown. And now credit card transactions are back on past pre-COVID levels. So people are out, people are spending. So you can see that profitability come through. Uh, hey, Daniel, before we get into the stock-specific conversations, have you got any questions on market outlook for Mark? Well, I guess my question is, I mean, those people who've been um – anti-cyclic this year would probably be rejoicing on the notes of uh, of an emerging vaccine early next year. Um, ha have you uh, participated in the anti-cyclic transactions you know, in this year in consideration of the prospective release of a virus? Yeah, we we have. Um, in more recent times, um, I guess, as you know, we were all hoping that some of these vaccines would, would work and get approval. Um, and you know, the, the severe underperformance of um, you know, tourism, education-facing industries and those that have been uh, locked down and, and impacted greatly by social distancing. Um, over the last couple of months, um, you know, we've started to rotate away from some of the really successful um, IT, techie, healthcare names that were beneficiaries of lockdown and virus and and rotated some of that money into some companies that are, are going to be major beneficiaries of a reopening and you know i'm going to talk about Qantas in a moment that's clearly one um you know flight center is another that we've invested in um we've invested in um i mean vicinity a shopping center um and, and look these these type of stocks the star the casino group these type of companies have already seen a significant positive re-rating, um, but I suspect there's more to come. And, and it's also that rotation that we're seeing globally a little bit out of 
growth stocks and momentum stocks into cyclicals and into to deeper value stocks. And, um, you know, that, that's got more to play out, I think, in the short term, um, given uh, what's happening with, um, with the vaccines. And you're great. I mean, terrific growth in Flight Centre in the last few weeks of 20% just on the back of the, that, that announcement. Yeah, absolutely. So on the back of that, Mark, let's get into some stock-specific conversations. Kick it off with um, with Aussie Broadband and then we'll go to PointsBet and then t- and finish on Qantas. Let's, sure. What have you got? Look, Aussie Broadband is, um, is only recently listed. It IPO'd only uh, a month or two ago. And... Um, you know, we're attracted to it because of its exceptional growth, um, particularly you know, relative to its peers. Um, it's, it's growing its top-line revenues at around 90% compound um, on a rolling three-year basis, which is quite extraordinary. So it's a retail service provider of broadband services. It's got a 4% share of the Aussie market at the moment, um, but it's, it's adding... 11% of new connections. So it's growing way faster than the market and, and its market share. Uh, to give you an idea, its market share 12 months ago was only 2.7%. So this is a top-line growth story, um, but it is it is also profitable um, now So and, and is going to become a lot more profitable. It's, a, it's, a, it's leading the market in high and ultra-fast speed plans. The importance of that is the ARPU or average revenue per user for um, those high speed plans is much higher than your lower speed, you know, standard 50 meg a second type plans. So their margins are growing very strongly. Um, the overall virus thing has seen an acceleration of the structural tailwinds that we've been seeing in the telco land anyway, with greater and greater data consumption and higher and you know more demand for high speed con- connectivity um, more and more people working from home and that that um, is going to continue um, and finally it's Aussie broadband is a very attractive asset in that space to the larger players so you know Telstra is obviously the market leader you've got TPG Optus and Vocus. Now, Aussie Broadband's already the fifth largest player in the market. Um, they've got Vocus in their sites and even Optus, they potentially think they can catch one day. So it's an industry that has seen significant rationalisation over time. Um, we certainly wouldn't be surprised if um, we see further rationalisation and that one of those bigger gorillas at some stage um, swallows up Aussie Broadband. But very well managed, management owned, uh, you know, have significant skin in the game with equity and, and have done a fantastic job to date. So that's Aussie Broadband. Um, points bet is thematically a little bit similar in terms of, you know, really rapidly growing young company. So it's a corporate bookmaker. It's It's been operating in Australia for a few years. Um, and, it, and it's moved into the US market. You've probably, most of you have seen some of their ads on TV. You're probably sick of their ads on TV, but um, that's a big part of, uh, of the business is customer acquisition. And the US sports betting market, is it's only recently been legalised in America and it's just been rolled out and approved on a state-by-state basis. Now, a lot of these states... Um, 
particularly now post-COVID, are really struggling financially. So this is a way that they can generate revenue by, um, you know, approving bookmaking. Um, and, and, um, and so Points Better, as of today, are in five states. They, they open in Colorado overnight. Um, they've got approval in a number more states. Um, it, it's almost a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The largest market in the world legalising um, sports betting. It's, uh, it's legalising again. Didn't they? They shut it off for a while. Yeah, yeah. It used to be legal, but then they shut it off, and now it's back online. Yeah, so everyone was just uh, going overseas to make their bets, and they <laughs> realised, well, gee, we might as well bring it back onshore, and at least we can click the ticket, right? So, uh, yeah, look, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and points bet have been there from the start. Um, so, again, you know, growing that top line very, very aggressively in the customer numbers. Um, profitability is something for down the track at the moment. It's all about it's a bit of a land grab. It's getting market share. And that shift to online wagering is accelerating. COVID's made that, you know, even more dramatic in Australia with the retail tabs being shut for quite a while. So these guys, they've got 3% of the market currently. They think they can get to 10% by 2025. Um, an important um, advantage for them is that as a new company, they've just got outstanding technology. It's all brand new. A lot of their competitors have cobbled together different technology platforms over time, and there's been a lot of consolidation and M&A in the industry and then trying to cobble different systems together. These guys have got uh, the absolute best cloud-based wagering platform. They recently announced a, a massive deal for them and, and for their growth prospects with NBC Universal in the US. It's a five-year media partnership. Um, NBC Universal are the biggest sports um, operators in, in the US. They've got 184 million viewers across all sorts of different platforms. And they also took a 4.9% equity stake in PointsBet, which I think is a real... Um, vote of confidence in, in the future of the company. So as part of that deal, uh, they did a big equity raising, $353 million. As I said, they're not making money. It's all about growing the business, growing, getting market share at the moment. So they're gonna need that funding, but as, an, as a shareholder, we know that it's gonna, it's, it's gonna be, they're gonna be well-funded for quite some time. So we don't need to worry about another equity raise in the short term and in fact, as part of that raise, they issued options. So um, with the exercise of those options, they'll be able to bring in more money and NBC Universal also, I think, have some options. And then finally, um, they will launch in the first quarter of next year iGaming, which is uh, effectively online casinos. And so that's going to be a whole new uh, revenue generating arm for them. And, uh, and that will be profitable pretty much for day, from day one as opposed to, um, you know, the corporate bookmaking market where they offer a lot of what they call generosities to, um, to attract um, customers initially. Um, final point on this one, similar to Aussie Broadband, um, there will be consolidation over time. We've seen a lot of it already, and it's a global consolidation game. It's not just happening in Australia. If these guys continue to do the, the great job that they're doing and continue to grow their market share, I think it's inevitable at some stage that one of the really big players, um, either in the US or in Europe, um, takes these guys over. So that's that's potentially the end game. 
And then finally, um, a, a quite a boring company in a lot of ways, but one we obviously all are very familiar with. And, and this is, um, you know, a reopener uh, trade. Um, it, it's a real leverage play on, on reopening and, um, and a domestic travel recovery. And, and, I'm, and I say domestic uh, because I do think international travel uh, is still unfortunately for us Australians some time away until... Um, you know, the virus is well and truly under control and the vaccines have been taken by, um, you know, a large percentage of the global population. Unfortunately, you know, countries like the US is a lot of the population that don't believe in the virus and, and won't take a vaccine. So it could, it could take quite some time. But just on a domestic recovery and reopening, Qantas can, can turn uh, from being currently loss-making to being very, very profitable. And with Virgin's demise um, into bankruptcy and admi or administration, the industry structure here in Australia has really improved. And what we're gonna see going forward is a very rational domestic market. Um, you know, the new owners, Bain, um, private equity, their, their priority is gonna be profit over market share. So Qantas, and, and Jetstar, um, their budget airline, are, are going to do very, very well. They've also been able to take advantage of the virus, if you like, to really um, cut their costs even harder. You know, for years they've been trying to get headcount done. This has enabled them to be able to do that um, very quickly and dramatically, and also rationalising the fleet. A lot of the older planes have now been retired and they'll just focus on the most fuel efficient um, and passenger efficient planes uh, in, in the fleet going forward. And finally, you know, again, partly due to COVID, we've seen the oil price collapse and, and consequently, um, you know, the, the outlook for jet fuel prices going forward is, is, um, is for much lower prices, which at the end of the day means a better margin and profitability for Qantas. Mark, I'm just looking at the Qantas share price. So over the 52-week moving average, and we're here today on the 17th of November, um, lowest March around two bucks, two dollars and three, but it went all the way. It was it was seven dollars forty-six pre-COVID, sitting at about five dollars thirty at the moment. You know, with even with domestic travel opening and I guess headcount lowering, do we see profit uh, profit increasing, growing over the next few years? And can you see the share price getting back to a, above pre-COVID levels? Yeah, maybe not pre-COVID levels uh, until we get international opening back up again. They're in that intervening period that you referred to, they have had a large capital raising as well. So they have repaired the balance sheet, if you like. Um, look, as soon as uh, the, the state borders open up, we're just gonna, I think we're going to see an explosion in domestic flights because everyone's been cooped up and just wants to... To, to travel and we're, unfortunately we're not going to be able to travel too far uh, maybe to New Zealand maybe to Fiji but uh, I think we can write off the US and Europe holidays for uh, at least another 12 months so yeah look uh, the the operating leverage is is um, is, is significant um, the, the the company will snap back to profitability, I think, pretty quickly. But as I said, to, to get to pre-COVID levels, they have had a, a large equity raising, which is dilutive. And um, yeah, 
they, I think you probably would like to see international kick in. But the international business historically has not been as profitable as the domestic business. So it is that domestic business that is the jewel in the crown and it is a, a very comfortable duopoly that we're looking at for them to operate in. Well, tell everyone to come on down to sunny old, windy old, rainy old Melbourne. We've got it all, all four weathers in one day. What a place to be. <laughs> yeah. um, Daniel, I know you've had a fair bit of a focus on Qantas and travel travel stocks. Um, what have you been seeing in the space? You got any questions for Mark? Well, I mean, I, personally, I've, um, I've been jumping into leisure and hospitality and travel for the last four or five months, banking on the emergence of a vaccine. Um, for a period of time, I thought I was completely insane, but at the moment I feel liberated by what's happening out there what are some of the, the sectors and and uh and some of the areas that we need to sort of keep an eye on over the next few months that are particularly worth putting some money into well i think um tourism is uh is an area clearly that's been hardest hit um and education um you know they're, they're the two biggest um earners for services in services for for the australian economy so um, you know, any opening up that we see there is, is, is obviously going to be very positive for the country and for employment um, for, for a lot of particularly younger people. Um, look, just the resources sector generally um, we still think looks pretty attractive. Um, so yeah, the multiples that some of these iron ore producers are, are on, uh, Fortescue, BHP, Rio, um, they're on kind of single-digit PEs. Uh, they've got double-digit earnings yields and, and in um, Fortescue's case, a double-digit dividend yield. I think they're yielding kind of 12% fully fruit at the moment and Rio and BHP have probably got fives in front of them. Um, you know, gold's taking a bit of a hit at the moment because everyone's de-risking and rotating out of... Um, looking for funding to, to go into these um, beaten up value stocks. But on a two to three year view, still very positive on, on gold. Um, you know, China's continuing to stimulate their economy. You're going to see uh, massive infrastructure spending um, globally. Um, you know, I think the US, Europe, Australia, we, we're going to see quite a significant amount of government support for major infrastructure projects. So again, that flows through into raw material prices, so, you know, mining stocks, but as well, um, you know, infrastructure stocks, um, you know, will be beneficiaries and you know, even something like a transurban, as particularly Melbourne opens up and traffic recovers. And I've seen stats that we're back to, I think it's 89% of where we were pre-COVID for traffic in Melbourne, although um, you know, public transport's down at 30% of where it was and and it's going to take a lot longer to, to recover. Um, so, look, there, there's lots of um, industries and sectors that were hit particularly hard by COVID that, um, you know, with the pent-up demand, you're going to see a strong recovery. And, and some sectors like, um, you know, particularly, um, you know, non-discretionary type retail like supermarkets and a lot of the healthcare stocks that were big beneficiaries of um you know lockdown shopping and um and, and just uh you know concern health concerns um those kind of stocks have had their run and, and probably 
will continue to be a funding source in the short term. The big sector that I haven't mentioned is the banks, um, you know, a big part of our market. Um, they, are of, they are a true cyclical sector at the end of the day, right? So uh, if we continue to see the economy recovering, I think that the banks can continue to perform quite well. And um, they, they do offer a pretty attractive fully frank dividend yield and hopefully will uh, be able to increase their payouts as, um, as, as uh, the economy and their profitability recovers further. So, you know, Stefan mentioned his clients and not obviously not earning anything in the bank or very little in fixed income and term deposits. Um, you know, if you can get 5% fully franked dividend yield from uh, a big bank, um, I think that's pretty attractive at the moment. Um, just a quick one, Mark, uh, before we finish up, there's been one question around, so back to Aussie broadband and the adaptation of 5G mobile networks around Australia and using five, the 5G network for downloads as opposed to relying on the old school MBN or even what Aussie broadband are rolling out. How do you see, and you've obviously done an assessment, how do you see 5G sort of impacting uh, what Aussie broadband are doing? Yeah, so at the moment, obviously, um, they are just uh, reselling NBN, but uh, one of the things that the new businesses that they're looking to get into is, in fact, um, you know, mobile phones. So they will be playing in that area in the uh, in the not too distant future. It's an interesting question as to what the adaptation rate will be like for um, broadband over five G. Um, you know, the rollout is is still fairly new and fresh. Um, Telstra and, and Optus are now offering it. I, I'm not sure how strong the take-up's been at this stage, but, yeah, look, um, it'll be a competitor, no doubt, to um, to the NBN network. Um, but as I say, you know, Aussie Broadband are certainly uh, aware of that and they're looking at value-adding services like Fetch TV um, and, and like a mobile service provider. So... Um, yeah, I think you'll see some news there fairly shortly from Aussie Broadband. Beautiful, Mark. Um, before we sign off, Daniel McDonald, any last questions you've got for Mark? No, not at all, Mark. Fantastic. That was, that was quite insightful. Thank you so much for sharing um, all that information with us and coming and, and uh, giving us presenting some information on the fund. It was great to meet you and um, thank you for being part of our community today. No, it's been a pleasure, Daniel. Thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, Mark, thanks for me as well. As you can see, for everyone listening out there, it seems like it is an exciting time to get into the markets. Uh, a lot of positivity around vaccine news um, and a lot of markets that have been so in love for so long starting to pep back up and a lot of pent-up demand coming back in. Let's hope the markets continue to run. There's been a bit of green this week. Let's hope they continue for a long time. Mark, obviously, I hope I know you hope for volatility. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to say, mate, thank you very much. Uh, for anyone out there, if you have any, if you want to look into uh, Continua Capital, they've obviously got a website. Otherwise, their distributors are Benelong Funds Management. Uh, so ask your advisor around how to get into Cadinia uh, if you're interested. Thank you for your insights on the stocks. Really appreciate it. For, for those of you interested in McDonald Legal, they help for SMSF setups as well as any sort of general law advice, wills and estates. Um, as yeah, as well as other other trust and stock setups. Whereas me at Angel Advisor, we help people set up portfolios. So people that have cash term deposits, they say, all right, guys, where do we go? And how do we use funds like uh, Cadenia Capital to reduce our volatility in the market? So guys, one final word. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll end it there. 
Uh, take care. All the best. Um, and let's hope we can have a COVID normal Christmas. Indeed. Right. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Investor Types podcast. What I want to remind you is that everything you heard in this podcast is general advice only. Please don't consider it as personal advice. If you do want to consider it as being personal advice, please go and speak to your licensed financial planner. Everything here is just informational purposes only. Take it as you will. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon.